All right, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 23, I think is where we want to go. Exodus chapter 23, or we'll go to chapter 24. We'll go to chapter 24. Chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Here we go. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. A lot, we could spend a couple of years trying to figure out what's going on there, could we not? All right, that's Exodus 24.10, now 24.11. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. Everybody see that? Okay. Make sure this, uh, there is, everything is set there. Okay, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me in the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. Okay, so what I want you to see is something pretty significant, something pretty spectacular is kind of happening here, right? I would say, I think we could agree this is not your normal everyday way things work. Agreed? Okay. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. Again, something significant, spectacular is going on here. All right. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount and the eyes of the children of Israel. Pretty spectacular, is it not? Not only what they have seen, but the people looking up, what does it look like? Like a devouring fire, like this giant fire. They probably have no clue what's going on. But obviously, when God's doing all of these kinds of things, it usually signifies not only to the people who are present at the time, but it should to you as a reader, something pretty significant is happening. Can we agree to that? I, th- I think we can agree. Th- we should be able to agree to that. All right. And verse 17 and this, uh, or verse 18, and Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount, and Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. All right, so we have a lot happening here. Something spectacular, a spectacular scene is playing out in front of everyone's eyes, right? Moses is now going to be there for 40 days and 40 nights, which I think that seems to be significant because that number is repeated in other places, yes. And then what happens in chapter 25, verse 1? And the Lord spake unto Moses. So now uh, Moses is receiving direct revelation. And he, and he says, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. So he wants them to take up an offering, but the kind of the requirement for the offering is that 
People doing it willingly. Willingly. That's always the, that's the way the church should always operate. We don't want people to give who don't want to give. They only give when they want to give, right? That's really, now, it, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's really the way the Bible seems to lay it out. It's a, it's a willing offering, right? And then we'll, look what happens. And this is the offering which you shall take of them. What, what's the offering? What's the, what's the, uh, all the, in, the things that they are to take up? Number one, gold. Number two, number three, Brass, number four, and blue and purple and scarlet, fine linen. We could just summarize all of those as fine linen, right? And goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, and badger skin and shittim wood. Oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense. The onyx stone and stones to be set on the ephod and the breastplate. Now stop right there. I don't know if Moses understands everything going on here, but he's called up into this spectacular situation and God just tells tells him to take an offering and he starts giving him a list. Like, hey, write this list down. This is what you're going to ask an offering from everyone. Right? And he he, he writes it down. Now, why is he going to take up this offering? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's the key verse. That's the verse you want to circle. That's the verse you want to focus on because right there from that moment, this is going to introduce and set forth what we're going to be doing now for, I don't know, a long time. We're going to be studying the tabernacle in great detail, right? For a very long time, okay? Because it's going to take a long time to do so. All right, because this introduces the sanctuary or the tabernacle. In fact, look at the very next verse. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Hey, you're going to make this sanctuary, and he's referring to it, and you're going to follow the pattern of the tabernacle that I'm going to give you. The tabernacle and the what and the instruments. In other words, the tabernacle, whatever we, I mean, you, we know what it is, but I'm just saying in, in this case, whether he knows what it is or not, he's going to follow the pattern of the tabernacle and all of the instruments. He's going to follow specific rules. And God sets up this meeting to tell him to do this in the most spectacular way, which is a good indication as a Bible student. Why? Does he have to make a big spectacle of this? He could have just said, hey, he didn't have a spectacle. He could just talk to Moses at any time. Hey, I need you to make a, get the people to give an offering and they're going to make this dwelling place. But he makes it a big deal. It's a huge deal. So that right there tells us there's something maybe more significant to it than we may want to think. We just see it as a tent. We may know some interesting things about it, but it's probably more significant. So we're going to begin a study. Now, when we did Jeremiah, I limited myself to a three-month time period. We did 70-plus hours of teaching in three months, all right? I'm not going to limit this. Because if I limit this, I don't know what will happen, okay? But if we did 70 plus hours on uh, Jeremiah, this is going to probably require maybe as much or more, only because, well, you're going to see here in a minute why, because there's a lot here to consider. So let's do this. First thing we're going to do, and I've already done this on the podcast, but for those who didn't hear it, so I'm going to move through this quickly. I'm not going to do a lot of talking about it because it's, 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 well, I did it for a podcast, but we'll do this quickly, all right? I'm going to give you five very quick reasons 
for those listening online who listen to the podcast, they probably already know these, but for those who, who didn't, here we go. We're going to go through this quickly. Five reasons we should study the tabernacle. All right, five reasons. And I'm going to go with reasons that's not the obvious one. What's the obvious reason we should study the tabernacle? It's in the Bible, okay? All right, so that's the obvious one, all right? But I'm going to go with the more less obvious, all right? Number one, the first reason we should study the tabernacle is because of the amount of scripture that speaks of it. And this was the first assignment I gave everyone online to uh, basically grab all the scriptures that speak about the tabernacle. Well, let me just give you an example really quick, all right? The, 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 when you consider this, the record of creation of the entire universe takes up two chapters. The fall of man takes up one. The tabernacle, with its priesthood and its offering, takes up 50 chapters. That's crazy, all right? That's crazy. It's broken down something along the lines of about 13 chapters in Exodus, about 18 in Leviticus, about 13 in Numbers, about two in Deuteronomy, and about four in Hebrews. That's a lot. And references to the tabernacle and other parts of the Bible occupy even many more verses. Those are just the main chapters. If we break down all the references to it, I don't even know how many we have when it's all put together. It's insane. Now you would, now just think, think about all, and it's, and it crazy. Think about all of the attention, all the focus given to baptism. We can look up all the scriptures about baptism. Guess what? We could do that in the, in the next 30 minutes. We could knock that out quick. How many verses dedicated to the Lord's Supper? We could probably knock those out in 10 to 15 minutes. How the church should be structured. We could probably knock that out in 5 to 10 minutes. Right? There's, there's these major doctrines where we, we, there's not a lot of scripture sometimes, and there's fights, and there's disputes, and there's differences, and there's division. And then you've got this huge thing in the Bible called, this huge topic in the Bible called the tabernacle. Like, I, I was going to assign a topical study, all right, for the Bible study exercise for the people online, but I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. That's, I don't even know where to start with a topical study on this. It's so, like, 50 chapters? Where do we even begin? I don't even know how to begin. I don't even, I still don't even know how we're going to structure it because that's just like, do we just start, like, where do we start? I don't know. And a lot of it's going to be what? If you've ever read about the tabernacle, it's usually the section where you start doing what when you're reading? Blah, 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 blah. You just kind of just start mumbling words, like blah, 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 blah. Yeah, this is eight feet tall, and this is seven foot, and this is a cubit, and, and it's what kind of wood, and it's like at rings of this, and purple, and, and you're blah, 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 blah. And you just kind of just start mumbling, like you say you're reading it, blah, 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 blah. and then you're like, oh, read 10 chapters today. You mumbled through all 10, right? Okay. What do you do with that? Now, theoretically, how does that actually play out in real time in the church? We mention, hey, here's some of the measurements. We, they say, they pick, we pick out a couple of cool measurements and everybody's like, ooh, that looks cool. You show a picture, right? And everybody's like, ooh, that's cool, right? And then immediately you're going to go into something else, but you don't really dig into it. So how much do you dig into? Well, on one hand, you would say, well, I don't know if some of that's useful. On the other hand, God seemed to think it was useful. 
dedicated 50 chapters. If we believe it's the inspired word of God, why did he spend so much time on the tabernacle for crying out loud? Right? I, 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 there's, I need 50 chapters and just understanding why you created a world in which you knew that was going to fall into sin and people are going to die and go to hell. Could you give me 50 chapters on that? Oh, don't look at me that way. There's a lot, there, there's lots of, there's 50 chapters I need, right? I need, I need 50 chapters on a lot of us. Wouldn't it be nice if we have 50 chapters on trying to understand the Trinity? We have a hard time even defining it. Considering the church can't even agree on the word repentance. Wouldn't it be great if we had 50 chapters on that? Clearly the church can't agree on justification. I mean, I need 50 chapters on a lot of other stuff, but we got 50 chapters on a tent. There's got to be a reason. Remember, I always tell you that there, that sometimes when you're looking at the text, there's sometimes the text gives you a clue. That, that's a clue to me that there's something more going on here. I don't know. I'm not saying we're going to be able to figure it out, but hey, there's nothing like trying, right? Okay, so that, that, the first reason we should study the tabernacles just because of the amount of scriptures that speaks of it. Number two, it's mentioned in both the Old and New Testament. This is not like something you can just say, well, that's that Old Testament stuff. This is in both. And this is the one I want you to circle today. This is the one I want you to put in an exclamation part next. It is considered, the tabernacle, it is considered by many to be God's masterpiece of typology. That is where we're going to be really working on. It is considered God's masterpiece of typology. All right? If you don't know what typology is, that's all we're going to do today. So you're going to know by the time you leave here. Okay? Number four... I, I, so number three is because it's considered by many to be God's masterpiece of typology. Number four, because of possible ignorance about it and the details of it. I think a lot of reasons we have to study this is because there's just a lot of ignorance about it. Let me, let me give you a test really quick, right? How many tabernacles were there? Are we sure? Because that can go to a Bible dictionary right now that will tell you there was three. Because of the ignorance of it. No, I'm saying tabernacle. Okay, you see why we need to study it? If I got a Bible dictionary sitting in my studio right now at home, laying right there next to where I broadcast, and it's open to the entry for tabernacle, and it lays out there are three, there were three, and it gives the scripture reference for each one. And if I don't know that, now, we may disagree with their conclusion, but the point is, obviously, someone believes that there was three. Why? Was there? Was there not? That, that, but you know why that kind of thing happens? Because people don't dig into the details. So because of ignorance of the details, then we're going to get into some of that, and we're going to look at that. At some point, we'll get to that. I mean... Now, now people are going to be trying to look. Just don't look now. We'll, we'll, t- we'll challenge it, all right? Well, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll grab the Bible dictionary. We'll put it down as a hypothesis, and then we will test it. You know, that's what we do here, right? We don't learn theology at Victory Baptist Church. We do theology. And you can see that's a popular church philosophy to have, right? 
It's a, people love a church that does theology. In theory, if you ask them, they'll be like, ooh, that sounds awesome, until you, until you do it, right? Okay. Okay, a, a church that does theology is like the idea of, of working out. Everyone likes the idea of working out. No one likes to do it, right? Everyone likes the idea of eating healthy until you eat healthy, right? Everyone, okay, everybody, yeah. all right, you get the idea. Everyone loves to buy exercise equipment until it turns to a coat rack, Right? Well, it's kind of like a church that does theology. Everyone think, everyone, everyone loves it online, right? Online, well, they, they love it because they can just simply click, go to the next thing. Coming to church where they do theology, people tend to leave very quick, right? They tend to click off of it really quick, right? Number five. So number four, because of the ignorance, and number five, because of the possible neglect. I think people just neglect all of these details. They neglect all of it. Because let's be honest, reading it can be what? Let's just say it. Okay? Well, I know there's a word you want to say, a word that I don't use ever in my in the English language. Right. I won't even say the word. For those listening online, someone's used a word that starts with a B. Well, that sounds really bad. Okay. They used the word boring. I'm like, that sounds really bad. Okay. They used the word boring, and I never use that word because I do not believe that boring exists. Okay. That's only in your own mind. There should never be a reason for anyone to be bored at any point at any time. There's just no way. I don't even understand it. It makes no sense. I don't understand. All right. I don't understand. But. Some, but let's be honest, some of you, and we, when you read it, you can be like, listen, there'll be sections of this study where you're going to be saying, wrestling fans do this sometimes. If there's two wrestlers that they're not into the story, or they don't think the wrestlers are quote-unquote what they call not over, I know you don't really care about wrestling, but here, the crowd will go, boring, boring, and I feel horrible for the wrestlers who are stuck in there, because then they're like, what do I do? We got to tell this story, and the crowd's chanting boring, and it's horrible, and I feel bad for them, right? Okay, they don't do it, it used to be bad in the 90s, and they've kind of gotten away from it now, but, uh, and sometimes then the wrestlers will have to either try to improvise the story, or start moving at a faster pace, well, and a lot of times, church members don't chant, boring, but I can look out there and go, lost them, okay, because nobody's paying any attention. Everybody's off in la-la land, planning lunch, texting a friend, who knows what they're doing, but you've lost everyone. Well, there's going to be times in this, guess what you're going to feel like? Come on, let's just be honest. Come on, say it. You're going to be like, boring. You're going to be like, I don't care about that, and I don't care about that. My job is to try to make you care, but there's only so much I can do. But I know this. You can say, well, I don't care to know that. That's not my problem. You own the same Bible I do. I don't know if anyone will remember because it happened right here in this church. We're preaching on the psalm. We're, we're in the Psalms. And I'm trying to explain to everyone the headings of the Psalms, right? The headings of the Psalms. And there's lots of concepts about it. Like in some cases, say, and I'm just using random numbers, the heading for Psalm 17 may actually be for Psalm 16. Right? That in some cases, maybe the heading actually belongs to the previous psalm. So we started trying to look at this, right? And we said, someone literally said in the middle of it, why are we studying this? I don't care about this. And it wasn't a baby. It was an adult. And then you just kind of go, why did I go into ministry? 
Why? Look, what's the point? And it's like, it's like, I don't know what, what, I don't know. You come to church to do What do you want me to do? Do a song and dance? What do you want me to do? Get, get dogs jumping through flaming hoops of fire? Like, what do you want? I don't know. Like, but like, that's the kind of, and sometimes, you know, as a pastor though, here's the sad part. Sometimes, you know, as a pastor, you can't really deal with these things because guess what? You'll lose the people. But what? Do you skip God's word because you lose people? I don't know what you do there. Like, what? Like on one hand, it's easy to stand for the principle. I'm going to teach it even if you don't like it. Right? I'm going to double down. That's my, that's my natural. That's, that's the way I tend to work. But it's not always beneficial to do that because obviously that individual is no longer here. So clearly it didn't. It, my, my being insistent that we're going to continue to study it did not actually work did it. But if I would have, if I would have done, if I would have given in to what they wanted, then where does it stop, right? Then at some point, I just walk, I, you, the person would just stand here and I walk through the door and they tell me, preach this today. And the minute I have being told what to preach, and I'm sorry, I got better things to do with my life, right? I got better things to do with my life. If you're going to tell me what to preach, you've already written it, so you don't need me to Preach it, right? That, that kind of makes sense. So, but, but I just want you to know, I'm very aware, painfully aware, that there's going to be some of this, you're going to be like, oh, I don't think I want to go to church on the days he's studying that. And I understand that. That's the danger. Because some of it's going to be tedious. Probably some of you didn't like when we spent, what, almost six months going through every word, uh, every time we use the word Israel in the entire Bible. Probably some people thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, right? I'm going to come to church and all we're going to do for an hour is like, okay, where's the next verse? It was, I think Sarah was the one doing most of the work. I'm like, Sarah, where's the next verse? And they're like, okay, the next verse is, okay, what's the next verse? I, and probably for, anybody walking into a church like that would have been like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. We're just going to go through every verse that uses the word Israel. But why did I do that? So no one can ever tell me what Israel means ever again. Nobody can ever get in my face and make up some lie because I've read every single verse in the entire Bible that uses the word. We did the same thing with baptism. We did the same thing with being judged according to our works. We've done that with numerous things. It's tedious. It's time-consuming. It's not exciting. It's not a three-point sermon that'll make you cry at the end. Right? Okay. But it may make you cry, but for a different reason. But what is it trying to demonstrate is that we're here to do what? It's, it's to study this. So the tabernacle's there, so we have to study it. That's, that's the way I feel about it. So that's what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, the, the real reason we're going to do it is because it's connected to Leviticus, which is my favorite book in the Bible. So, they, you, know, I, what, what, you know, I can't get away from that. Okay, I got to at least acknowledge that. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I would love to go to the book of, I would want to, what I want to do is go to Genesis and show how, because of man's sin, they were kicked out of the garden where God dwelt with them. And then there's been like, well, then how does a holy God dwell amongst a sinful people? And then how does that, and then lead us to the building of the sanctuary and how that ultimately leads. So I want to, I wanted to go through that, but I'm not, I'm not. Because I don't think there's any way to even get near the subject without us spending, I don't know how much time, um, a considerable amount of time trying to understand typology. 
We got to understand typology. So if you want to write down a word today, just write down the word typology. It's all about typology. Okay. I'm going to give us a basic introduction. If you have a Bible dictionary, go ahead and grab a Bible dictionary. You will need it. All right. And we'll see. We'll see how far we can get here. Okay. All right. Everybody ready? All right. I'm just going to start carefully. All right. Here we go. I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to start with a definition of typology. Do you need a Bible dictionary there, Robert? You got one. Okay. There. Here we go. Take that one. All right. Okay, everybody. Now, before we look at it, before we even look at the Bible dictionary, let's start with some basic definitions here. You ready? Okay. All right. You won't see an entry if you're looking for typology. You'll see types. You won't see typology. All right. Everybody ready? I'm, gonna, I'm not starting with the dictionary, though. I'm starting with this. Here we go. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson defines typology as the following. You ready? The study of spiritual correspondence between persons, events, and things within the historical framework of Revelation. I'm going to read that again. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson defines typology as the study of spiritual correspondences, plural, I guess is a better way to do it, the study of spiritual correspondences between persons, events, and things within the historical framework of Revelation. Typology is the study of spiritual correspondences between what things? Number one, persons. Number two, events. Number three, things within the historical framework of Revelation. The spiritual correspondences between persons, events, and things within the historical framework of Revelation. When you have that down, say amen so I can explain or we can move forward. The study of spiritual correspondences between persons, events, and things within the historical framework of Revelation. Now, that's a lot to write. Okay, now, let's just think for a second. Everyone have a Bible? Does the Bible talk about events? Does it talk about people? Does it talk about things? All right. Now, what typology says is you take those persons, those events and those things, and you find the spiritual correspondence or the spiritual meaning of those things, persons or events. Does that make sense? Or I'll read from an explanation. And other... And another source, it explains it this way. Types are pictures, object, or, or pictures and object lessons by which God taught his people concerning his grace and saving power. So they explain typology as types are pictures and object lessons. So think of it this way. He takes the event, the persons, are the persons real? Yes. Are the events literal? Yes. Are the things literal? Yes, God takes those literal things and then he uses them as a 
picture or an object lesson by which God taught his people concerning his grace and saving power. All right? So, and, and, so basically, types are pictures or object lessons by which God taught his people concerning his grace and saving power. So he's going to use what things? He's going to use persons, events, and things as basically pictures or object lessons. The things are literal. The events are real. But now it's going to serve as an object lesson, as a type of something greater, something spiritual. They say, another one says it this way, the mosaic system. Now, the mosaic system, that puts us right there with what? The tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, Leviticus, was a sort of a kindergarten in which God's people were trained in divine things by which also they were led to look for better things to come. So God and the Mosaic system, in a sense, it was kindergarten, using very specific, very real things, like an animal or a sacrifice or the tabernacle. or the, These are very literal, hands-on, but they were to do what? The point to something else. Better things to come. Better things to come. That's the thing. It's, it's like the kindergarten. It's the kindergarten. Now, it may have been the kindergarten for them, but I bet you many of them didn't catch on. And it's not the kindergarten for us because it raises a million hermeneutical issues that we're going to have to deal with that are not easy to, to work through, all right? Um, another one writes this, script, uh, that scripture types, they call them scripture types. So typology sometimes is referred to as types. Typology is sometimes referred to as types. All right, types are emblems which were designed by God to represent and prefigure some great and good thing to come. So they're emblems. Basically, they're there to do what? They're literal, they're historical, but they are to, pre- they are to point you to something better that is to come. That's the main thing to understand, is that these events, these persons, these things... They serve as a picture pointing you to something better that is to come. Does that make sense? The modern version of Webster's Dictionary defines typology as a doctrine which holds that things in Christian belief are prefigured by things in the Old Testament. This is the modern version of Webster. Let me say that again. Typology... He defines it as a doctrine. Typology is a doctrine which holds that things in Christian belief are prefigured by things found where? In the Old Testament. It's a doctrine that holds that things in Christian belief are prefigured by things in the Old Testament. All right. Now, uh, I do have the older uh, versions of Webster, 1828, um, which he goes into a much more greater detail. But we'll step back from all of this right now because I've got pages and pages here of trying to explain typology. We will come back to some of this in a second. I want to keep going. But since we have the Bible dictionary here and I like to use them, look up the entry for types. 
Look up the entry for types. Everybody got the page? Or it's type, I should say. It's page 1,281. Everybody has it for those listening online. We're using Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Here we go. Type. A figure. Everybody got that? Representation. Or symbol of something to come as an event in the Old Testament foreshadows another in the New Testament. So once again, the Bible is made up of events, things and people, right? And these events, things and people, they serve as a representation or a symbol of, this is the key phrase over and over and over, something to come. As an event in the Old Testament foreshadows another in the New Testament. So an Old Testament event may foreshadow or picture or point to an event that's going to occur in the New Testament. And typically, whatever's going to occur in the New Testament, whatever's going to happen is better than the Old. That better, I think, is a key word as well. All right? Types generally... Find their fulfillment where? In the person and ministry of Christ. But they sometimes relate to God, his people, or some other reality. So it can point to other things. But the main thing is, here's the main thing to take away. A type is pointing to something to come, and I'm going to emphasize that is better. I think that's generally the case. Generally the case possibly think of some cases that would be worse, maybe. We'll go with better for now. Okay, we'll go for better. I have to think that through a little bit. All right. Next, it says, scholars using typology range over a wide spectrum of interpretation. Oh boy. What does that tell you? All right. So we have typology, but guess what? There's going to be a wide range of interpretation a wide range of interpretation. So, whenever we deal with typology, where is always the struggle begins? The struggle begins as first as identifying, is it a type? So first, okay, if you want to write this down, here are some of the struggles in typology, okay? This is not in any books. This is just me, okay? This is just me, all right? All right? The struggles with typology is, number one, identifying what is a type. Right now, you could open, just, just open, just, just do this for fun. Just close your eyes, open your Bible to the Old Testament. Just open your eyes and just point at a verse and just tell me what you find in that verse. Just tell me what you find. See if, you, see if, if, it, if, if it describes an event or a person or a thing. Okay, what did you find? What, what did you find, Sarah? Okay, the altar for the feast. Okay, does that altar point to something? Does that feast point to something? All right, what did you find, Stephen? You found Job. Okay, is Job a type? Okay, does he point to something else? Okay, did y'all find something? Anybody else do this or just? Tablets of stone. Okay, does that point to something? You see how it works? Now, everything, as soon as you open the Old Testament, you're going to find people, objects, events, right? 
places. Well, he didn't mention places, but places as well. You have places, right? Those are significant, right? And sometimes those places and those people will be mentioned in the New Testament. When Jesus goes to the woman at the well, whose well was it? Jacob's well. Well, is there some significant to that? Oh, it mentions Jacob. Is there some significant to Jacob? Now, sometimes the New Testament will mention it. How is it using it? So the first thing we have to do is say, is it a type? Is it a type? Is, is there a definitive list in the Bible saying it's a type? Well, there is and there isn't. It depends on how we look at this. We'll, 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 we'll get to that. So the first issue, is it a type? Second, even if you agree it's a type, what's the second big struggle? What is it pointing to? So the first thing is, is it a type? And then secondly, what does it represent? If, it, if, you, if you open your Bible and it says, Abraham walked 10 miles, and someone says, that, that 10 miles is a type. Well, then who deter- determines what it means? Right? If, if it mentions a donkey, if it mentions a, any other kind of animal, does that represent something? It mentions a sheep. Well, wait, I think Christians are seen as sheep. Okay, then that sheep points to Christians. Does it point to... So first, is it a type? And second, what does it actually represent? Those are the two big struggles, is it not? That, that could lead to what? Oh, man, that well, it just could lead to utter, complete anarchy and chaos. Okay. It could lead to who knows what. All right. Now, the rule I typically operate from, what rule do I operate from? I, my argument has always been, does the New Testament reference that person, that place, that thing, that event, and then give it a spiritual meaning? Does it give it a... And if it does, then guess what I can say? It's a type, and I can tell you specifically what it represents. For example, in the New Testament, is Christ called our Passover lamb? Yes. That immediately tells me that the Passover lamb, the event, the the killing of the lamb, the lamb itself, all pointed to something better, which is Christ. And how can I be so dogmatic about that? It says that. That makes it simple. In fact, before we continue to read here, I'm going to jump to the Schofield 1917 Bible because look what he does. I believe it's in Exodus chapter 25. I believe it's 25. Yeah, here we go. Okay, Exodus chapter 25. Schofield says on page 100 in the 1917 version, he says this at the bottom. You ready? The general authority... For the types of Exodus is found, one, as to the persons and events in 1 Corinthians 10, two, as to the tabernacle in Hebrews 9. So, so he thinks, this is very important, according to Schofield, he believes that he has, there's an authority of the types in Exodus. The first one is to the persons, because the persons serve as an example to us, and he points to 1 Corinthians 10 to prove that. Second, to the tabernacle because it's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 9, right? Well, he mentions 9, but it's in more than 9, right? Having the assurance that in the tabernacle, everything is typical. So he says he can, he feels confident then because of Hebrews 9 that everything in the tabernacle is, is typical. Now that's, that's a big statement. It's a bold statement, all right? 
but you can see where this could lead us. Now, but wait, look where he goes here. The, de- the details must of necessity be received as such. So he makes an argument that then all the details of the tabernacle must be received as typology. They must be. He doesn't even offer like, you have no choice. And then look what he does here though. This is very interesting because Schofield says, are you ready? Two warnings are necessary. Schofield's going to give us a warning. Two warnings. Warning number one, nothing may be dogmatically asserted to be a type without explicit New Testament authority. Oh, look at Schofield. Everybody should applaud that. Look, you have to make some rules. If you don't make some rules, I'm telling you, chaos will ensue and chaos will ensue. All right. So number one, nothing may be dogmatically asserted as a type without explicit New Testament authority. And number two, all types not so authenticated must be recognized as having the authority of analogy or spiritual congruity merely. In other words, if it's not authenticated, by the way, then all you can really say is, well, there may be an analogy here, maybe some congruity here, but that, that's, it doesn't have the same authority because it's not dogmatically asser, asserted, all right? And then he goes on to add more about the tabernacle. Now, go back to the entry on types. I just want you to see that there, there are some possible difficulties with typology, right? Okay, what are the possible difficulties with typology? What are they, number one? What's the first difficulty with typology? Is it a type? All right. Number two, what does it represent? Okay, and our, my theory is nothing should be considered a type. I'll use Schofield's language. Nothing should be considered a type without New Testament authority, meaning the New Testament has to declare something to be a type. Other than that, you may be able to find some correlation and may be able to find some kind of a connection, but you got to be very careful what to do with that, Right? Okay, now, back to what they say here. All right. I'm going to go back and read that paragraph again. Scholars using typology range over a wide spectrum of interpretation. On the one extreme is the method that makes practically every item in the Old Testament find a greater fulfillment in the New Testament. That's one extreme. So way over here is the view that does what? Everything in the Old Testament points to something in the New Testament. We reject that. There's just no way that works. No way that works. That's in cray-cray. That's insane saying that's, no, no. No, just no. We're not going to go there. Because that leads to what? Even if we adopted that, can you, I can't even imagine how it would work. Can you imagine if we adopted that hermeneutic? How long would it take for complete, utter disagreement to happen right here in this church? Within a couple of seconds. I mean, we, we, had a, we had trouble arguing over the word forever. Can you imagine if we start everything in the a new te- Old Testament represents something in the New? Uh, I mean, it would just, it, it would, it'd be over. It would be, we'd be done. It'd be over. It'd be chaos. I don't even know how that works. The only way that could work is nobody is allowed to talk or argue, okay? Nobody. And then I'll just go through going, this represents this, this represents this. And if you disagree, don't tell me. And that's the only way it could work, right? It could work in a Catholic system. Or you can say, we have the authority to interpret, not you, 
Okay, but you know, that, that okay, yeah, but yeah, that, that's a crazy extreme, all right? So that's on the one extreme, all right? Um, at the other extreme are those scholars who insist on the word type being explicitly mentioned in the New Testament before they recognize any Old Testament type. So they put us on the other extreme. That's me. They put me way over here. They think that I'm in the extreme. I don't think I'm in the extreme. All right? I would argue that I'm not in the extreme. Why, why, what would be my argument that I'm not in the extreme? What would be my argument? Well, I would just say, well, I, then if, if the New Testament doesn't say, then there's no guidelines. There's no curb. There's no guardrails. There's no rumble strip on the highway going, telling me to get back up. There's just nothing. If, if, if I don't need the New Testament to say that's a type, how could you, how could you even tell me I'm wrong? I could, I could just pick anything and then do, that represents this. And you would be like, Um, to, well, I would probably not go maybe that far. Okay, you're right. They, they are drawing. I, I still think they're kind of putting us over in this extreme. But yeah, they're saying that the word type has to be mentioned. I agree that I don't think I need a text that says it has to use the word type, but I'm going to go for a text that clearly seems to indicate it is a type. Whether it uses the word, it's got to have to be pretty explicit into me in the New Testament. So I may, I may be almost there. I may be close to that. But yeah, I, it does say he's the type, but it says he is the Passover lamb. Well, I know he's not the actual lamb, so I've got to see it as a type, right? I mean, I may not have the word type, but I can figure out when you tell me that he's the Passover lamb, I know he wasn't the actual Passover lamb, right? So clearly I know that's a type. So I may not need to say the word, but when it states it that way, to me, it's basically saying the word, right? So I, I'm pretty close to this extreme. And not everyone agrees with my extreme, but whenever someone disagrees with my extreme, I also always simply say then, well, then what are the guidelines? What are the rules? Because everyone loves to go to the Old Testament and which beloved character and the book of Genesis is always preached as a type of Christ, Joseph. Oh, there's been so many sermons on that. So there's been books written on it. Pastors love that stuff. They love it because there is some analogy. There's some congruity, I guess, using the word. There is some correlation there, yes? Joseph was this. He was hated by his brothers. He, was, he came to his own, but was received not by his own. I could go, I mean, we could go all day, right? I mean, and, and it's like, oh, man. There, and when you start preaching, because like, oh, I've never seen this before, and everybody thinks it's so good. The problem is, is, is Joseph, has Jesus ever pointed to Joseph in the New Testament? I don't know. I don't see it. So the minute I say that, my e- people will start emailing me going, ah, I can't believe it. I can't believe you even say that. I'm like, well, well you, we got to have some kind of rule, right? We got to have something. Maybe they, maybe they actually sound like that when they email me. But, but that's how I hear it in my brain because they lose their minds. And it's like, calm down. Am I, am I denying that Joseph is a real person? No. Am I denying the beauty of the story? 
No, I do question some of the story because why did God have to do all? God could have just moved Joseph to Egypt. All right, that gets me into a whole different philosophical problem. But, but I, I, it's like, just calm down. All I'm saying is, I don't know if I can dogmatically assert Joseph is a picture of Jesus because the New Testament does not draw that correlation. Jesus is connected to which people in the New Testament? Who is Jesus connected to in the New Testament? Well, Adam, okay, that's probably a good one, right? He's considered the second Adam. Who else is he possibly connected to? Oh, is he connected to Melchizedek? Okay, well, I think the uh, the dictionary's getting ready to go there, right? In other words, you could go through the New Testament and find out who is Jesus specifically connected to in passages. Then you could be like, okay, now I can go study that person and see how the two correlate. But sometimes you may feel like, well, wait a minute, I think Joseph fits better. But who gets to make the rules? We, we got to have something to control this, right? All right, so let me read this again. Scholars using type, typology range over a wide spectrum of interpretation. On the extreme is on one extreme is the method that makes practically every item in the Old Testament find a greater fulfillment in the New Testament. At the other extreme are those scholars who insist on the word type being explicitly mentioned in the New Testament uh, before they recognize any Old Testament type. Again, I, I you. I don't insist on the word type, but I'm pretty, I I need the text to basically tell me it's a type, whether it uses the word or not. Does that make sense? I'm almost there. Between these extremes, many scholars feel that there are some Old Testament correspondence to New Testament truths that are indeed typical, although the word type is not specifically used. Now, they say, for instance, Melchizedek. They They say Melchizedek falls into in the middle here. He's not to that extreme. But is he in the middle or is it more specific than that? Let's see what they quote here. All right, what do they quote here? They make a reference to Genesis 14, 18 through 20, right? Psalm 110, 4 is said to be typical of Christ. Now, let's just do this quickly. Obviously, we know Genesis 14, 18 through 20 is not going to help us much, right? That's the original setting for Melchizedek. Agreed? They say go to Psalm 110.4. Go to Psalm 110.4, which everyone, well, if you follow the liturgy of the hours, you know how important Psalm 110 is, right? Every Sunday night. Okay, Psalm 110. Yeah, we've talked about this before, about the, in the ancient church, how important Psalm 110 was, right? Okay, so let's go to Psalm 110. What are we going to find here? All right, here we go. They want us to point. They want us to look specifically at verse four, right? The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the question is, first of all, it says, whoever this person is that's being referenced in Psalm 110 is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, does that tell me specifically Melchizedek is a type or a picture of? I don't know if I can go there, but it says that this person is coming from that order of, right? Now, is, is Psalm 110.4 quoted in the New Testament? Where? Well, they, they make a reference to Hebrews 6.20, so I'm going to pretend and believe that that's where they're going to lead us, right? We'll see. Hebrews 6.20.
All right, now here we go. Please note, Hebrews 6, 20. Whether the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is after the order of Melchizedek. Now that much, can we be dogmatically assert that somehow Christ's priesthood is connected to the order of Melchizedek. There we can, we can be dogmatically assert that. Now, what does that mean? I don't know how, what, we, we can, we can draw speculation. But is he a specific type? Now, even Schofield, though, remember he said you have to have something dogmatic? Look what he does in the very next chapter. He says, the Melchizedek high priesthood is resumed. The historical Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He immediately says it's a type. Guess what he does? He offers no notes to explain it. He just asserts it. He's already established that what's the rule? It does explain a little bit more, but does it say it's a type specifically? We says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So, was 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 Melchizedek pointing to Christ? That's seeming to be the idea that's given. So at least we could do this. Rather, how dogmatic we would want to be. I see, they try to put this in the middle. I think this is a little bit more, I think this is more specific, right? I mean, it, I mean put, it, put it this way. Is it clearly linking Melchizedek and Christ together? There's no question they're linking it together, right? They're clearly pointing out some specific things about Melchizedek that you would seem to think that reading it from a historical standpoint, you may kind of go, where did he come from? And here tells us that it doesn't give what? Any indication of his origin, right? Nothing, right? Because Christ is eternal, right? So immediately, I, I see, I don't, I don't know if I would put this one in the middle. This one seems to go far more towards my argument. I got to have something in the New Testament. This gives me something specific. This is not like Melchizedek is not linked to Christ. He's specifically linked to Christ in Hebrews where? 620. All right, well, yeah, and, and chapter 7 as well. But I'm seeing that one verse in chapter 6 specifically links them together, right? Everybody agree? Okay, I mean specifically. So I will, I'm going to argue, I'm, I'm still going to, I'm going to maintain my position. The reason I can look at Melchizedek as a possibly possible type it's because it is specifically mentioned, and I believe even in the original, remember what I always say? Whenever you're reading the original story, the original account, if there's something in the text that just doesn't make, like you're like, what, this doesn't make any sense, then we can stop and go, something's going on here. Something's going on here. And we, when you know something is going on is when you get to the New Testament, all of a sudden, who shows up? Well, in this case, Melchizedek. You're like, well, whoa. Of all the people in the Old Testament, Melchizedek only shows up in how many verses in the uh, Old Testament? Like three verses. Joseph is mentioned a lot, chapters and chapters, right? Well, all of a sudden, Melchizedek shows up in the New Testament? I don't know. That tells me something's up. See, I say, I believe that's giving us, it may not use the word type, but it's kind of screaming at you, 
Something's going on here. That's what we have to look for. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Uh, they go on to say, um, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, or, or Jesus said to the, Jesus said the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, was in some sense typical of his crucifixion. And we can look at John 3, 14 through 15 to see that. We're running quickly out of time. All right. But so we all know that story, right? As Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man shall be lifted. Clearly, we know Jesus. Now that one is specific. Jesus specifically makes it, uh, a typology, right? He may not use the word type, but he clearly is demonstrating it. Yes? Okay. So in that case, I think it still presents my position. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9 through 10, pointed out that the tabernacle typically foreshadows the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the argument is Hebrews 9 and 10 is the New Testament proof that the tabernacle is typology. All right? Now, that gives us possibly a clue on where to start. All right. And then what does it say? The last, the last little paragraph there. The, the, NK, the New King James Version uses the word type in only one place, Romans 5.14. The Apostle Paul mentions Adam as a type of him, Jesus, who was to come. He uses the word pattern. And it tells us to also look up what phrase? Right? Antitype. We won't do that now because we're out of time. But this begins to give us a basic understanding. So here's the thing. Why are we going to study the tabernacle? Because how many times it's mentioned. Why else are we going to study the tabernacle? Okay. Because it's called God's master class, basically, of typology. Right? What were some of the other reasons? I gave us five reasons why we're studying it. Ignorance of it? Neglect of it? How many times it's mentioned? And it's mentioned in both the Old and New Testament. Okay, everybody got all those? Okay, all right. That's why we're studying it. We get a pretty good idea of typology. A basic idea of typology is simply what? That the Old Testament is made up of stories and uh, and accounts of... um, We're we're going to... We'll put people... We'll put places because Bobby mentioned it. Places, things, and events, right? We got that? Now, because of that, they are, the argument is that many of those persons, places, things, events, that those things serve as a object lesson, a picture pointing to things to come, and typically, at least most of the time it seems, points to something better. Something better. Something better. Right? Remember we gave all of those definitions? Right? Okay? And so, the argument is, then if that is true, then is the tabernacle a type? The argument or the justification for saying the tabernacle is a type is probably a couple of things to consider. The first real justification is, it is mentioned so much, something's got to be going on there, at least, you would think, right? That doesn't guarantee anything. But just the way it starts, with this spectacle, and then you're like, whoa, Moses gets instructions to build a tent? And then there's chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. 50 chapters? Come on now. That's crazy. That doesn't even count all the references. That's, that's a good clue to a Bible student that you should do what? 
you got to stop and figure out what's going on, right? That's a, that's a good example. And then we do. Is the tabernacle mentioned in the New Testament? Yes. What is even more interesting is in the Gospel of John, when it says that the, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt, tabernacled. All right. You start putting all of that together, that tells me something's going on. Something's going on. So our job is then to, now, here, the debate is how do we start? Well, we're going to start by figuring out how we get to even the need of a tabernacle, how, where, how we get here, right? Then I think what we may do is then we may then jump to, we may go do this in reverse order. We may go to Hebrews 9 and 10 because that's the justification for it, right? We'll read the justification of it. Then we'll revert back to the Old Testament and then we'll deal with the construction. We'll deal with all that and then we'll start dealing with the typical, typological possible meaning of everything. And we'll, all we can do is just rely on our own thoughts. And because guess what? The New Testament's not, is it going to break every little bit of it down? That's where it becomes problematic, right? Certain parts of the tabernacle, we can be immediately go, well, yeah, whatever Hebrews 9 or 10 says. So I think you see why I may start, after we kind of build up the getting to the building of the tabernacle, why jumping to Hebrews 9 and 10 may, may make the most sense. Because that's the supposed justification of it. Then we'll revert back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we'll know if I get ready to say, whenever I, if I use a source and say, this book says it's a type, all of you should be able to say, uh, Hebrews 9 and 10 doesn't point to that. that. Therefore, I think the key is we need to be experts on what two chapters that's my theory. Now, I know I'm doing it completely wrong because you're usually just starting the Old Testament and immediately jump over to Hebrews 9 and 10 is what? Kind of is your proof text. But we're not going to do it that way. Right? Everybody like that idea? Okay. doesn't really matter if you like the idea or not because that's what I'm going to do. Okay. All right. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you uh, this afternoon. Lord, as we get ready to stand before a a study that is going to be very complicated, difficult, and at times tedious. I hope that you will give us the desire to really know your word and to care about what your word says, whether it's exciting or not, but because it's your word and give us a desire to understand it. And Lord, if, if this is your masterclass in typology, then help us understand the types correctly, learn from them, be convicted by them, and spiritually benefit from them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,